Uh, but now as we prepare to, to, to uh, once again turn our attention to the word, would you all pray with me as we kind of re- re- refocus and, and recenter ourselves on the word here? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege that it is to be invited to participate in something like missions, um, to be invited to, to share your gospel all over the world. And we do ask that you bless this team that's preparing to go to Bali. We ask that you really oversee all of their preparation, all of their logistics, all of the things that need to click into place, Lord. We give those over to you, and we know that you are, are um, yeah, you are your sovereign over those things, and we trust you with them. Father, this morning, as we turn our attention to the Word and turn our attention to the continuation of, of our study in the book of Acts and what you have for us here, I would pray that you meet, uh, meet each and every one of us where we're at with this message. If you're bringing us a, a message of encouragement or thoughts of conviction or, or even just uh, inspiration as to what to do next in our walk with you, I pray that this Word would do that and do that effectively in the lives of all who hear it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to be continuing uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 31. If you want to follow along in, in your Bibles, again, that's Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 31. And I'll read that for us here this morning. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 9, verse 20 begins like this. It says, At once he, and the he here is, is Saul, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem uh, among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. And day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowering him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and how the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus." So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to start this morning by kind of playing a, a little bit of a game, a little bit of a challenge for y'all. So you're the 930 service, you've had your coffee, you've had your chance to wake up, so hopefully this will, this will go well for you. Um, but I've gone around town and I've taken a, just a couple of pictures of some places in Manhattan, some things that are, are kind of so classically Manhattan that it should be something you're, you can really quickly identify. And, and, and so when you see the photo, uh, if you just want to call out where this place is, what, you know, what its name is, uh, we'll, we'll see how well you do. So here's the first one. Anderson Hall. That was like a really easy warm-up, right? Y'all, y'all were on that. Your graduates are like, yes, I'm done with that place. Um, but yeah, this is Anderson Hall. It's one of the most kind of classic, uh, kind of, you know, iconic buildings in Manhattan. It's got all that really cool old limestone. I think it's one of the oldest buildings, you know, on campus to date. And uh, it's, it's kind of one of those places that just pops into your mind when you think of Manhattan, Kansas, and especially think of K-State. It's one of the most recognizable places. All right, I tried to make this one a little more difficult by being like an artsy angle or something, but it'll still be pretty easy. 
Wareham. Yeah, so this, this is the Wareham, all right? So down on Points Avenue, all right? It's, it's probably one of Manhattan's most, like, famous pieces of architecture, coolest kind of pieces of architecture. Uh, if you look closely in, in a bunch of TV shows, like when they're trying to show, like, small-town America, this, this is actually, like, you'll see a shot of Points, and you'll see, like, the, 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 the Wareham sign. It's, it shows up in B-roll all over the place on TV. It's, it's kind of fun. It's just kind of got that cool kind of old-look Americana to it. Really, really kind of iconic piece of Manhattan. We'll do one more, and, uh, and if you get this one really easily, it's good news because it means we get to be best friends. Dusty, look at all my new best friends. Yes, the Dusty. This is the Dusty Bookshelf. If you've never been to the Dusty Bookshelf, it's the best used bookstore, or used and new bookstore in Manhattan. Um, just fantastic place, surrounded by books. It's got all this cool, like, red brick, and a few years ago there was a fire, and they left some of the fire damage in places, so it looks really neat and cool, and it's just an awesome, awesome place to, to hang out, and it's one of Manhattan's favorite little, you know, corners and, and places to be. The point is that, that, that sometimes there's just, there's just something about a place that it makes it so unique and so beautiful that it obviously stands out, all right? And it kind of becomes signature features. And, and when you look at it, you just know that's where this place is, all right? It just, you know, very, very quickly you identify, oh, that's, that's Anderson. No, the limestone, no, the steeple. Or, oh, that's the Wareham. The, the neon signs give, signs give it away. In this morning's passage, we are given a chance to see just a few of the, the signature, quintessential, beautiful features of the early Christian church. And we're going to look and see how did, they, how did they treat each other, how did they act, and what did it look like for them to embrace this idea of becoming and being a, a church. And as we do this, it's important to remember that these characteristics are not accidents. The foundations of the church back then, just as they are now, they were very intentionally created and laid down by none other than than Jesus Christ himself. If you recall back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had made his plan clear. He had told the disciples, you are going to take my gospel through throughout Judea and Samaria and beyond to the ends of the earth. And along the way, as you do that, you'll form new communities. You'll form these little churches. You'll form groups of people that are going to gather together and learn together and worship together. So much so that, that these churches in the early days and as they are now, they are Jesus's building projects. And they, they carry his signature style all over them. And, and we can tell that Jesus is alive and well and and working on these churches when we see that they have these healthy and thriving and, and, and kind of signature ideas of what Jesus is doing when he's building the church, how we see them carrying out and obeying his commands. And so this morning, as we study Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 31, we're going to see some of these features. We're going to see some of what, what is that signature that should be all over our church here at Faith Manhattan. If Jesus really is here building us up and making us part of a community, what are those obvious, uh, obvious signature pieces that we should see here at our church? Now, last week, Pastor Steve preached from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, where we read the story of a man named Saul. And uh, anytime you, you learn about Saul, it's important to remember that Saul actually has two names. One is Saul, which was the one that we'll see in this passage. The other is, is his name of Paul. Uh, a lot of times, especially Hebrews back in that day, had two names kind of for different contexts. When he, when he was hanging out with a lot of Hebrews, he'd use Saul. Uh, but when he was in his more Gentile or Greek context, he might use the name Paul. And that's why as we move through the rest of the book of Acts and, and he's hanging out with more Gentile context, you hear the name Paul more often, but it's the same guy. Um, so we see Saul, uh, he was on his way before, he was on his way to, to, to a city called Damascus and his purpose there was he was going to round up, he was going to arrest and he was going to apply pressure to and, and, and even, um, you know, persecute the early Christian church of that day. That was his goal, that he made it his life's mission to go out and just stamp down the church that was growing in his day. But along the way, he had just an incredible experience, and he was met on the road by none other than Jesus himself. 
and, and the heavens open up and he hears this voice and he's overwhelmed by this presence and the voice cries out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is, is struck blind for a period of time, and it's only after Jesus sends another Christian named Ananias that he's able to regain his sight, and, and his entire life at that point is turned upside down. He receives the Holy Spirit, and after spending several days with the disciples in Damascus, uh, he begins to recover his strength. And we're left at that cliff's edge at that point in the story, and where we pick up this morning is, is what's going to happen to Saul? How is he going to react to this? What's the rest of his life going to look like now that he's gone from, from persecuting the church to being wrapped up and becoming a part of it. And that's where we pick up in verse 20, where it says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who had raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call him the name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So Saul's life has just gone through this, this profound transformation. As, as recently as back in chapter 9, verse 1, just 19 verses before we get here, Saul was described as breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Right? That's who he was before. And now, after having met Jesus, and after having been prayed for by followers of Jesus, after having received the Holy Spirit from Jesus, now Saul's life is forever changed. He will spend the rest of his days passionately pursuing this God-given purpose of proving that Jesus is the Messiah. His whole life becomes about this. And, and this is a story, this, this, this transformation, this incredible change, this is a story in the Bible that's as common as the limestone brick around Manhattan, right? Because what Jesus does when he builds his church is he changes lives forever. Sinners become saved. Enemies become allies. Persecutors of God's people become proclaimers of God's truth. This is how Jesus operates. These amazing stories of redemption and transformation and reconciliation, they are hallmarks of Jesus' work. When Jesus builds his church, lives are radically changed forever, and that includes our lives here today as well. Now, inevitably, many who hear this news will immediately doubt that it could be true for them. All right, those who believe in Jesus already and those who do not yet believe often come to the same conclusion, and that is basically saying, you might think that Jesus can change lives, but he couldn't possibly change mine. I'm too far gone. Right? The stuff I've done, the things I'm addicted to, the hurt I've caused, the hurt that's been done to me, all of this is way too much for God to want to deal with. All right? My life can't possibly be changed for the better. If you find yourself thinking that way, I want you to again consider and, and really look at the life of Saul. When we're introduced to him, we're introduced to a man who, who had made it his life's work to, to round up and imprison and even to execute people because of what they believed. Right? Saul was vicious and cruel and vindictive and dangerous. Saul was, 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 was angry, and he, he, he had this angry, kind of ugly, brutal past, and he thought he was doing it for all the right reasons, but it's still full of, of just this violence and anger. And yet, after he met Jesus, Saul's life became characterized by things like grace and wisdom and love and compassion and understanding. Saul would write letter after letter imploring people to trust Jesus and trust that Jesus could do for them what he had done for Saul. 
No matter what their past had been, their future could be, could be characterized by the signature of Christ, by, by the obvious impact of Christ's work on their lives, by Jesus' rebuilding their lives into something that would look like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So this week, if you are already a follower of, of Jesus Christ, if this is already part of your story and you believe, yes, just as, just as Saul discovered, Jesus is the Son of God, what I would encourage you to do is spend some, some intentional time, set some time aside, and reflect specifically on how Jesus has shown up in your life and what he has changed for you, what impact, what, what has changed because you know who Jesus is. Praise Jesus for the love he has shown you, for the changes he has created in your life and how he has formed you into a member of his family, made you a member both of this church here specifically and of his church all over the world. And, and, and this isn't just like a kind of a, a quick suggestion. I'm being serious. Take the time. Think through the reasons. Think through the ways Jesus has changed your life this week. And then spend time praising him for these incredible gifts. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus... Or if you are a Christian, but you have been struggling with your faith and, and what's holding you back is this belief that God couldn't possibly forgive you for what you've done. He can't change you for the better. I want you to hear me say that I praise God for the fact that you're here today at our church, that you've decided to make Faith Manhattan, at least this Sunday morning, part of your life. Right, I praise God for the opportunity for you to be here and that you trust us, that you're, that you're entering our doors and, and allowing us to be part of, of your exploration of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You are, you are welcome at this church if you're not a believer. Or you're welcome at this church if you're a struggling believer. Because I believe that in this community, in, in this church, that Jesus Christ is building himself that you have a chance to discover that all those things that you believe about God's going to keep you at arm's length, God couldn't possibly love you or, or forgive you, I believe this is a place where you can be proven wrong, where you can discover that God really does love you. You belong here. And I would hope that, that you would come and, and continue to trust us to come alongside you as you seek God and allow us to walk with you and pray with you and be with you at each day as you continue to look forward to that, to that opportunity where you see, yes, that for you too, Jesus can change your life as well. So my challenge to you would simply be, please continue to return. Please continue to give God this chance to speak to you here in this place among these people. And really, truly continue to seek who Jesus is because my, my only, the only thing I can tell you is that it is worth it to get to know Jesus, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. The next signature feature of Jesus is building his church that we will see in this passage is that when Jesus builds his church, his people are all about sharing all they know about Jesus. Right? When Jesus builds his church, his people are all about, they're fully committed, they're 100% in on sharing all they know about Jesus. I think it's important to note that throughout this passage, as Saul gets his preaching ministry underway, he's focused on telling people what he believes matters the most. All right, in verse 20, it says, And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 22, it says that as his preaching began to grow in power, it was because he was saying that Jesus is the Messiah, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 27, Barnabas describes Saul's ministry as one in which he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. There's a theme going on here, if you can pick it up. 
In verse 28, Saul is said to have gone all over Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Saul was laser-focused on using his time and using his talents to tell people that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. This was his goal at this time. And I find it interesting, and, and honestly, even a little personally convicting, that in the foundational days of Saul's ministry, when he was, when he was in this, this passionate fervor, when he was getting started, he made it his chief ambition to get really good about talking about Jesus with others. Right? This was his goal. He wanted to tell people about Christ. Proving Jesus was the Messiah was the content of Saul's message. Using his story and his testimony as a way to get people to come to the table and talk to him about, about Jesus, get people to, to come and talk to him about what was going on with Jesus and what had happened in his life, that's what he wanted to do. Now, we know from his letters that as the years went by, he continued to develop this deep understanding of, of God and, and his theology, and he helped Christians at the time articulate what obedience to God looked like and all these many facets of their life. But before he became this brilliant Christian theologian, and before he wrote the words that would ever, forever help believers form doctrine and, and systematic ways of thinking about God, Paul made his message just perfectly crystal clear. Jesus is the Son of God. Let me tell you why I think that. Let me tell you what happened to me that makes me believe Jesus is the Son of God. So my question to you who are believers with us this morning is simply this. Can you do this? Can you share, clearly share with others why you believe Jesus is the Son of God? If someone gave you that golden opportunity, you know, the, the thing that sometimes Christians love to talk about, they come, they sit down across the table from you and you say, your life seems different to me, you seem to have something figured out, what is that? Could you respond by telling them why you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and has saved your life and could save theirs as well? Before you tell them about your favorite bit of theology, before you tell them what the Bible says about this or that issue facing our society, before you recommend your favorite Christian author or favorite Christian book or Bible study, can you tell them the story of who Jesus is and how he has saved you? When Jesus builds his church, you find people that are committed to sharing all they know about Jesus and his gospel. It consumes them, it drives them, it's what they want to do. And if we are his followers, if we want to be loyal to Jesus, we've got to be like Saul and be willing to get better and grow in this crucial foundational calling. We've got to become people who are all about telling people all about who Jesus is. Now, please don't get me wrong. I think theology is important, all right? I promise. Go check out my, my books in my office. It's kind of my hobby. Um, and I think th speaking biblically and truthfully about the issues of our day is critically necessary. We need to bring this biblical worldview to the things that are going around, around us and share that with people. But as we look at this passage, as we're trying to learn the wisdom that this passage has to share with us, I want to be sure that you see how absolutely non-negotiable it is that Christians have the ability to share about Jesus, to share their testimony, to tell the story of what God's done in their lives. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to become the greatest evangelist that's ever walked this earth, all right? It doesn't mean that you have to somehow flip some switch and all of a sudden you're just so great and so wonderful and it's just so easy and natural for you to always talk about Jesus, all right? You're not a bad Christian if you're anxious or intimidated by opportunities to share your faith with others. I'm the outreach pastor of this church. 
I am often anxious and intimidated by opportunities to share Jesus with others. It's not because I don't love Jesus. It's not because I don't love the opportunity to share the gospel. It can just be a daunting thing. It's a vulnerable thing to talk about your faith with other people, especially when you don't know what that response is going to be. Feeling that vulnerability does not make you a bad Christian, all right? It's, It's okay to feel that as you enter into those spaces. Nevertheless, what we do need to commit to is having this be something we work on. Having this ability to talk about Jesus and share him with others needs to be something that we're willing to work on and get better at and seek opportunities to engage. Because what we have to share is the very best, most wonderful thing we could ever tell somebody about. I want to get better at telling people about Jesus, and hopefully you do too. And so in light of that, here's just a couple of things that you might try if you're thinking, I, I want to pursue this. I want to get, get on board with this idea of telling others about what I know about Jesus. The first is you could try the rooted experience, which is our, our kind of our discipleship experience that we go through. Um, and the next one will be this fall. If you've been around faith for a while, you, you no doubt have heard us talk about rooted. It's this awesome opportunity to learn more about theology, learn more about God, learn more about this church and how we connect to one another. But one of the things that happens in rooted is there's a unit in there that, that is specifically designed to give you a chance to work on telling your story to think through how you might share what God has done in your life. And you get to do that in your group, and you get to see how others do it as well. And it's just this excellent opportunity to gather with others and to work intentionally on how I might share my story with those that are around me. The second thing I'd suggest is that it's it's just that same idea is that you can practice sharing your story with other believers. It's okay to get in a room and tell people who already know about Jesus how he impacted your life and how you got to know him. And in fact, doing that in that place where you know you're a little bit safe and you know that you can be vulnerable because all these people are going to be so excited for you to share your story, that can help you work through some of those butterflies and some of those jitters. And so that when you do finally encounter that opportunity to tell a little bit about what you know about Jesus to somebody, you've kind of already got some practice down. It doesn't mean that you've got to have like a canned elevator pitch to like throw at somebody the moment they give you that opportunity. But it does kind of help you work out and work through what would it feel like? What might I say? What part of my story is best to recall in these moments? That's what practice does for us. And so I'd suggest in your life groups or just in your, in your Christian community that your brothers and sisters that you know, uh, share your story and then give them the permission to, to talk to you about, yeah, this part was great. This part was really clear. I didn't really follow this part. Maybe you could, maybe you could think about telling that in a different way. It just gives you the chance to work through some of those things and makes you more ready for when God might bring you the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody who doesn't know him. The final thing I would say is, as you think about, how do I get better at this? How do I engage this? Is honestly, you've got to pray. You have got to pray for your opportunities to share what you know about Jesus. You've got to surround this, this, this hope, this ideal, in, in, in coming to the Lord and asking him for direction and provision as you move into these things. Pray for peace in your heart and clarity in your witness. Pray for a willing audience and for spiritual hunger to already be in the hearts of those that you're speaking to. Pray that the Holy Spirit takes over that whole time so that what you're doing when you're sharing, it's just a catalyst for the Spirit's action in that person's life. When Jesus builds his church, his people are all about sharing all they know about Jesus. And if you're a follower of Christ, I hope you want to tell others about what Jesus has done in your life. It's the best story you know. So please commit to going out and sharing it with others. As we move further into the passage, we also see that Jesus, as Jesus builds his church, his people prioritize relationships. All right, his people prioritize relationships. 
After spending some time preaching in Damascus, Saul is forced to flee the city after he discovers that there is a plot to kill him. And so his next step ends up being going to Jerusalem, where he finally tries to connect with that that core group of disciples, the apostles, those early leaders of the Christian church. And when he first arrives, he's, uh, he's not exactly welcomed with open arms. Uh, The disciples are understandably not ready to simply accept this man who the last time they had seen him was actively trying to execute members of of their community, actively trying to kill members of the church. So they're not really, really ready to quite buy into this idea that Saul has all of a sudden become a disciple of Jesus. And so he's kind of kept at arm's length until someone steps up and stands beside him to vouch for what he believes Jesus has done in his life. In verse 26, it says, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him before the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. I want to be like Barnabas. Right? Barnabas is an awesome guy. Every time he shows up, he's just doing something kind and cool and wonderful. And here he steps up to acknowledge and defend the life change that Jesus has caused in Saul's life, trusting that the transformation is true and trying to help others do the same. Barnabas is creating connections. He's creating bonds. He's, he's making ways for relationships to come together. Barnabas knows that Saul's got a sinful past, but he's willing to let what Jesus says is now true of Saul to be what dictates his understanding of Saul's future. Barnabas is willing to let what Jesus says is now true of Saul to define what will be Saul's future and define his willingness to have a relationship with Saul moving forward. And so Barnabas goes out of his way to bring Saul to the church, to bring him before the leaders, to bring him in and and defend Saul's life moving forward, to, to help the church accept who he is now. Barnabas facilitates the new creation of of new relationships, and because of his example, we know that we as Christians must do this as well. The church is supposed to be a place that is filled with people who have a past. All right, the church is supposed to be a place, it's a collection of sinners who have been brought together and bonded together by the power of Jesus's love and forgiveness and grace. Because of this, the church cannot become a place where we prioritize the things that make somebody worthy in the eyes of the world. All right? We're not going to be a place where we prioritize the things like status or prestige or ability or class or a clean record or a carefully tailored and polished presentation of your best self. That's just not the things that comes to characterize. Those aren't the signature values of the church. The church is a place where we look at one another, where we meet with one another, And we're willing to be honest and vulnerable about the most terrible parts of our past. And then we celebrate how Jesus has redeemed every little bit of it. So I challenge you to consider this week. Who do you know that might need help being welcomed into our church? Who do you know that that might need help being welcomed into our church? It's intimidating to walk through our doors, come all the way through the foyer, Sit down in this room, be be surrounded by a couple hundred people that you may or may not know. And the whole time you're sitting there, you're thinking, does anyone know me? Does anyone care? Would anyone want me here if they knew the things that I'd done? All of that runs through all of our minds all the time. And what we need are people like Barnabas to step up and say, I'd love to get to know you. 
I'd love to know your story. I'd love to introduce you to my friends. I'd love to help you make connections in this place so you can feel part of and welcomed into this, this church that Christ is building. So if you've been here a while and you consider Faith Manhattan your, your home church, I really want you to think about taking on this role of Barnabas. Who can you welcome? Who can you vouch for? Who can you help get, get into our community and help us connect with and know and, and make connections with and have us expand our church family through that act of bringing them into and, and helping them become a part of this place? As followers of Jesus, we are a people who need to prioritize these relationships. So let's look at the best parts of what God is doing in the lives of each other and celebrate how he is building a church, his church, person by person, redeemed story by redeemed story. The last observation I want to make from this passage is that when Jesus builds his church, persecution does not stop progress. Right? Persecution does not stop progress. Saul's time in Damascus ends because people are so upset by his preaching of the gospel that uh, he receives death threats. They try to kill him, and so he flees to Jerusalem. Saul's time in Jerusalem ends because people are so upset by, that, by his preaching of the gospel that he receives death threats. People try to kill him, and so they have him flee, uh, flee from Jerusalem, and he ends up in his hometown of, of Tarshish. There is a clearly growing hostility to the Christian movement, to the Christian church, all the way throughout Acts. And it goes from, from anger and, and bitterness and resentment, and then it kind of becomes threats, and then it escalates all the way to people will begin to have their lives put in danger and, and lose their lives for the sake of what they believe and what they're preaching. It reminds us, these are sobering reminders, that there is a very real cost to, to following Jesus. This is not at all a, a risk-free decision. And yet, over and over again, in the midst of hardship, we are given reminders throughout the book of Acts, like what we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. So when Saul was persecuting the church, it did, it did not stop growing. And then when Saul became a believer and himself was persecuted, the church still did not stop growing. Biblically and historically, when Christians receive things like death threats, when we're misunderstood or, or, or when, when our churches are, are, are set on fire or bombed or, or when believers go into places where the gospel is not well received and their lives are put in danger and they are, and they are killed for what they believe, the result is not the collapse of Jesus' church. Something that Jesus, the Lord of all creation, is personally building is not so flimsy as to fall apart due to the mere pressure of human persecution. And so, even in the midst of hardship, we are encouraged by the power of the Holy Spirit. We endure persecution and await for the time of peace that often follows. Our numbers increase, our faith in Christ grows, and the gospel reaches out from Judea and Galilee and Samaria to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said it would. So yes, if you stick with Jesus, you very likely will go through times of hardship. You may be hated, you may be misunderstood, and you may even be persecuted. But it's okay, because such things do not hinder the plans of Jesus. In fact, they may very well be a part of how he is refining you to be an example of his love and his patience and his grace to the world. And so, commit to following his path of progress. Trust that because you walk with Jesus, it really will be all right in the end. Today, I encourage you to be both amazed and be a part 
of the church that Christ is building, full of radically changed lives, sharing all you know about Jesus, building amazing relationships, and trusting that persecution is nothing that you need to fear. The progress and growth and movement of the church is in the hands of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Let us rejoice and be thankful that that is true. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for the way you build your church. We praise you for, for, for how clearly it is that when Jesus is building his church, these sort of features, these sort of, 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 uh, of hallmarks end up characterizing all that we do and all that we are. We want to be people who share your word. We want to be people who build relationships. We want to be people... Lord, that, that, that prioritize getting to know those around us and loving those around us. We want to be people who don't fear persecution. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us do these things. Give us the power and the strength and the trust to know that if you're building this place, then it is a good thing to be a part of. And that we can trust it. And that we can find you here. Let us become more and more characterized by these sort of things, Lord. Bless us to do so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.